All right. Well, what's up, Manny? Uh, so, well, you know, I don't mean to interrupt your conversations. Um, I mean, I can talk over you, but I feel like that would be rude. So, um, what are we doing? We're going over the Bible today, and uh, we're going to find ourselves in James chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. It's okay to have a brain fart every once in a while, I think, right? Uh, you, get, you get to see that it happens all the time. Nonetheless, we're going to find ourselves in James chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. Sean was up here earlier uh, reading those verses. Uh, we're actually going to find ourselves in several pieces of Scripture today. We'll walk through those. Some of those are in the notes. Some of those are not. Uh, again, not so much a, a pitch, but in the event that you'd like to follow along because I'm just too hocked up on coffee going too fast, the screens kind of go pretty quickly, you can download our our app online. It's free 99. The Valley loves free from what I understand. So you can download it on the Google store. You can download it on the iPhone or uh, iTunes, whatever that is, uh, store. And uh, it's on there. All you need to do is look for uh, Storehouse CC. Find the app. The notes are there should you desire to follow along. And so today uh, we're going to find ourselves in a really, really cool piece of scripture. I think uh, one of the reasons for that is because it's kind of a, uh, it's going to be similar language that we actually looked at a couple of weeks ago when we first started James, particularly in verses two through four, I believe. And so as we start this section of scripture, you're going to hear some things that are common. You're going to hear some things that we talked about a couple of weeks ago. And so I'm not necessarily going to go into a, rev a review just because James does that in the opening verse. Other than that, one of the things that he does do in his opening verse, in verse 12, is that he goes a step further from where we were at in verses 2 through 4. And so we'll cover that in just a moment. What you're going to see today, you're going to see really two things. Number one, uh, James's style of writing, uh, we, we've been talking about this uh, for the past couple of weeks. James is writing to an audience that's predominantly Jewish Christians. And so in light of that, what he's doing is he's writing to churches that have have a lot of doctrine that know a lot about God, but they're not necessarily practicing their belief. And so a lot of the book of James, if not the entire book of James, is really theology in practice. He doesn't necessarily break down a lot of uh, biblical doctrine like someone uh, like Paul, for instance, but he does go into a lot of biblical practice. A lot of people really enjoy the book of James because he's immensely practical. Do this, don't do that. And when you do this, this is the reason behind that, right? He goes really, really, really practical. And I know a lot of you tend to enjoy that. Uh, in addition to that, his style of writing is one with slight frustration. And so because he's writing to several churches, you see him bounce from topic to topic. Sometimes he'll ever even cover the same topic multiple times, kind of like what we're looking at today. He might come at it from a different angle. He might go a little bit deeper in light of whatever the, the subject may be, but he does bring up a few times more than once. And so today, as we've been looking at for the past couple of weeks, we're going to unpack four uh, categories, four sections that we're going to find in these uh, six verses. Ultimately, what James is going to do, he's going to unpack this category of, of trials. He's going to unpack this category of temptation. And then he's going to go on and unpack who God is and then what God does. So those are the four sections that we're covering in these six verses. And so I'll kind of uh, guide you through that as best as I can, because he says a lot. 
most notably, what we're going to be talking about is temptation, right? And temptation, that word gets thrown around a lot in Christian circles, gets thrown around a lot in in Christian culture, right? Uh, Man, I'm being tempted with X, Y, and Z. And temptations, let me just begin by saying, are 100% real. And temptations don't just mean that, you know, you shouldn't eat that donut. It goes beyond uh, diet and exercise and discipline. It goes beyond certain things, right? Temptations are real. Temptations can be difficult, and they happen uh, when we're walking through one of the most difficult seasons in our life. We're walking through something that is very difficult and hard for us, or if you've just come out of the season like that, you can look back and see, man, there were so many temptations throughout that entire time. And so James is going to unpack what temptations are. We're going to dive just as deep as he will and kind of... uh, you know, dispel a couple of misconceptions in light of uh, temptation. So this is what I'll do. I'll read verses 12 through 18, and then I'll pray, and then we'll jump right into our time. Uh, Here we go. This is, uh, yeah, starting at verse 12. This is what James says. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. If you're taking notes, if you're underlining that, that those two words or three words, his own desire, I would, I would underline that. Then, verse 15, desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Verse 16, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, as we begin to uh, look at and unpack your word, Lord, I pray uh, and invite your Holy Spirit to be here with us uh, so that our hearts would be receptive, softened uh, and, and, and receptive um, to what you have for us today. I pray that we would submit ourselves to your word for the purpose of not just bringing you glory, but so that we would worship you, so that we would learn more about you, so that we would uh, in turn praise you, and so that we would come to a mature understanding of your word. Lord, I thank you for this time. I thank you for my brothers and sisters who are here. We ask all these things in your name. Amen. All right, here we go. We're going to unpack that first section that I was telling you about, right? We're going to unpack trials. Now, in verse 12 and even hints of verse 13, James uses similar language that he used back in verse 2. So that's going to be kind of our review. But like I mentioned earlier, he takes it a step further in chapter, or excuse me, in verses 12 and 13. So one of the words that he uses that may come across as very familiar is that he says to remain steadfast, 
right? We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. And the root definition of the word steadfast means to remain under. Think about an athlete who lifts weights and puts their muscles under tension. What that's going to do is it's going to get them stronger over a period of time, right? Whether it's the amount of weight or the amount of repetition, what it's going to do, it's going to increase that muscle belly and get them nice and strong. Steadfast is something similar to where we remain under, in this case, a season of trial for the purpose of growing mature in our faith. Right, that's what we looked at a couple of weeks ago when we were talking about being steadfast. Right, the purpose of being steadfast, the purpose of remaining under, is so that we would grow mature in our faith. Additionally, one of the things that we talked about, or the purpose of maturity, isn't just to be mature, period, but it's that so we would, or that it would result in godliness. Right? That's going to be an underlying theme that we looked at last week, that we looked at when we first uh, started James. This, this theme of being godly or growing in godliness. Right? So you're not in the midst of a trial. You're not just growing uh, steadfast for the purpose of growing steadfast. You're growing steadfast so that you would be mature and your maturity would lead to godliness, would produce godliness. And if the question then is, well, what does it mean to be godly? It means to come out on the other side and be more like Jesus. That's, that's what it means to be more like Jesus. And so James is using this, this same language in, in verse 12, right? And I think he's going to bring this up one more time throughout our time in the book of James. But nonetheless, he says, blessed is the one who remains steadfast, right? Some of you are in a really, really difficult season right now. Some of you maybe just came out of that season. Some of you uh, see that season coming, and you're just like, I don't know what I'm going to do. The first thing that I would uh, encourage you on is what James says. It's to remain steadfast, and it has purpose. It's so that you would grow in your spiritual integrity, so that you would grow in your maturity, so that at the end of it, you would be more like Jesus. In addition to that, James uses the language of trials. We, we talked about this again just a couple of weeks ago. And if you weren't with us a couple of weeks ago, or if you're new, number one, thank you so much for being here with us. Number two, let me tell you, trials are inevitable. Trials are inevitable for the Christian. You see, it's not a question of if you will face trials. Rather, it's a question of when you will face trials. Right? When you will find yourself in a difficult season, when you will find yourself in just a really hard part of, of life, right? And so James uses the same language again. And so in light of us knowing and understanding that trials are coming, difficulties are coming, not only are we supposed to remain steadfast, but there's something uh, uh, just under that foundation that the question, again, is not, God, how can you change my situation? Rather, God, how can you change me throughout this trial? Right? How can you change me? If we are to grow in our maturity so that it would produce godliness, right? Then we shouldn't be asking, God, get me out of this. We should be asking or praying, God, get me through this. And what is it that you're doing in me in this season? And I get it. That is something really difficult to pray. That is something that is really difficult to even think about. Because what you and I will default to is, let's just get out of this. Let's just bounce, 
right? And one of the things that he's going to go and talk about in the next couple of verses is temptation. And, and we'll get into that and we'll unpack that a little bit. But, but let me submit this to you. Uh, as, as we begin to unpack and talk about temptation, remember, it's not, it's not necessarily dietary concerns in terms of temptation. It is uh, a little bit further than that. It's a little bit deeper than that. It's when you're tempted to bounce in the midst of that hard season. You know what I'm saying? It gets, it gets really difficult. Finances are just totally strained. And so you want to bounce out of that season. You want to go do something very foolish as a way of getting yourself out of that season. Maybe you're in a difficult relationship or your, your relationship finds itself in a difficult season. And so the first thing you want to do is you want to bounce out of that relationship. You want to leave because that would just be the better thing to do. And that would be, I think, the more adult thing to do. And to a degree, maybe, and we can get into that later on in a conversation. But for the most part, oftentimes when difficult seasons come, the first thing or one of the first things, maybe it's just me that we want to do or that I want to do is that we want to bounce. You want to leave. You want to flee. You want to escape. You want to get away. And what tends to happen in the midst of that is that you and I make excuses. You and I make excuses and you and I come up with just really, really poor theology in the middle of that because it's too hard. And we're going to unpack that in just a bit. I don't, want to, I don't want to get into that just yet. But so two things. Number one, remain steadfast in the midst of the trial that you find yourself in so that you would produce or so that it would help produce godliness in you, Right? And then number two, don't ask in the midst of your trial, do not ask, man, how can God get me out of this? Rather, man, what, how can God change me? I get it. I get that it's difficult. I'm not, I'm not going to diminish that and I'm not going to dismiss that. But, but here's where he goes a step further. See, when we looked at verses two through four, what James ended up, or where James ended up stopping was, man, the purpose of trials is so that we would be mature, so that we would grow in godliness. High five. Let's go to the next topic. Here, he goes a little bit deeper. He goes on to talk about that we're going to receive uh, the crown of life, right? That the one who, is, uh, who remains steadfast will receive the crown of life. So this is new language. So we just covered a bit of a review. And then he uses new language. And when you and I, and maybe it's just me, maybe I've just seen too many war movies, right? When, when it comes to the crown of life, the first thing that we hear, is, or the first thing that I think about is this really big, nice crown with like jewels. And I think of like earthly kings. And so you tend to think like, oh, that means I'm, maybe I'm going to get my own kingdom. Maybe I am that awesome, right? When I read uh, that we will receive the crown of life. Now, the language that he's using here is very similar to what Paul uses. And he's not referring to anything earthly. He's not referring to something that you're going to receive in this life. Okay, let me, let me make that clear. When James is using the language of receiving the crown of life, he's not referring to something that we're going to receive in this life. In fact, listen to the way Paul says it in 1 Corinthians 9.25. He writes, every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we, he's talking to Christians, but we an imperishable. Okay, now let's think about an athlete for a minute, right? Because that's the analogy that Paul uses. Athletes undergo really difficult seasons of training. They put, on, they put themselves under a lot of stress and a lot of pressure. There are a lot of demands to perform a certain way, right? And as they begin to exercise their discipline as an athlete, they are thinking about what they're going to receive. They're thinking about that gold medal. They're thinking about that first place. They're thinking about that podium. They're thinking about what this is going to do to their career. They are thinking about something that goes beyond what's going on right now. 
It doesn't mean that they don't focus on what's going on right now. It doesn't mean that the training that they're undergoing isn't difficult and stressful and strenuous. It doesn't mean that they're not necessarily ignoring that. They're addressing that, but their mind is somewhere else. Their mind is on the podium. Their mind is on what is to come. Their mind is on what will be. That is what an athlete's mind is. That's why they train so hard. Same way for a Christian. As we undergo trials, right? Looking at verse 12. As you and I undergo trials, trials, difficult seasons, we know that God is allowing us to go through those trials so that we can produce maturity, so that we would grow in godliness, and all of that is happening in the now, so we want to pay attention to that, but where our hearts and minds are at is in what will become, and what will become is that we will receive a crown of life, and what we looked at last week is that we will receive an inheritance, an inheritance that is undefiable right? An inheritance that means that we get eternal sonship in the presence of the living God. That is what we're looking for. That is what we're looking toward. Like an athlete who looks at the podium, a Christian looks to eternal sonship in the presence of the living God. Again, that does not diminish the season that you're in, but it also gives you a little bit of understanding that this season doesn't go without purpose. The season does not go without purpose, and the purpose is to grow in godliness, to be more like Jesus, so that one day we would be with Jesus. Feel me on that? Okay? So that's the section of trials. And so then James transitioned into section number two. He talks about temptation. This is probably we're going we're gonna to spend probably the most time, if I, don't, if, if I don't slow down in the way I talk, we're probably going to spend the most time when we're unpacking temptation. Again, because there's, there's a lot of misconceptions when it comes to uh, temptation. And I think we just use them a ton, particularly in church culture. If you've been in the church long enough, Man, temptation is just there, right? And again, I think, and this could just be me, this is a very brief and shallow understanding. Most of the time when we're talking about temptation, I think uh, dietary restrictions or when it comes to dudes, uh, lust and porn. Like those are the only two things that I think of uh, most of the time when when it comes to temptation. But again, James is gonna go much, much deeper in light of what temptations are. And that might be you, right? You you might be on a strict diet right now, so don't eat the donuts, right? Here we go. So temptation. Let me read to you, better yet, let me read to you what James says and then we'll we'll go into it, right? James goes on to say, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. We're going to stop right there because the next verse is something else that he begins to unpack, right? Here's the first thing that I want you to know about, and this is the first thing that James sets straight, and he's doing this on purpose because there's a a transitory verse uh, in just a minute. Here's the first thing James says. James says that God does not tempt anyone. Very plainly said, right? It's it's in your Bible. God does not tempt anyone. However, trials do present temptations. Trials do present temptations. But God does not tempt anyone. And I'll unpack that a little more. But before I get there, oftentimes when we undergo a season of difficulty or when we undergo trials, right, 
it leads to one thing with two different results. It leads us to an immature understanding of the gospel. If we're not grounded and mature in our understanding of the gospel in the middle of a trial, and when temptation happens, one of two things will happen. The first thing that tends to happen, might, this might be you, I don't know. Uh, the first thing that tends to happen, right, <clears throat> is that we tend to blame God. And you try to blame God and you try to look at it, you try to look at it logically. Now, here's what I'll say. So this immature understanding of the gospel, uh, two results come out of that, right? In those two results, uh, neither one is biblical, which is kind of funny, right? Ne- neither one is biblical, but you're going off of how you feel and you're going off of the pressure and you're going off of what culture is saying. And so you're going to try to line up or you're going to be like that individual who is unstable, maybe taking some worldly advice and, oh, I kind of like this biblical advice and slap it together and you try to make it work. And it's not, unfortunately, right? And so, so here's the first thing that happens when we have an immature understanding of the gospel. The first thing that we will tend to do in the middle of a trial is blame God. And the logic tends to be like this. Well, God created everything, and if God allows everything to happen, he's allowing this trial for for me, he's allowing me to undergo this trial, and if he's allowing me to undergo this trial, he might be the one that's tempting me because there are all these temptations around me. And so really, if so facto, this temptation is God's fault, right? That tends to be the first thing that we think about, or one of the things that we tend to think about. And you know what? It's not unique, because that's the same thing that happened in the very beginning in Genesis 3. You guys remember Genesis 3, right? So Adam and Eve have been created. They're hanging out under the tree. They sin, right? And God comes down. And who does he call? Adam, right? He calls Adam. And he says, Adam, where are you? And Adam comes out. And he says, sorry, I was hiding because we were naked. And he's like, how'd you know you were naked? Right? This is all a paraphrase. Uh, and then uh, verse 12 in Genesis 3, uh, you know, after G, uh, God tells him, why are you naked? How'd you know you were naked? He goes on to say, the man said, the woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. I wonder what his body language was like. So really, this is your fault right? That's exactly what we're doing when we begin to blame God in the middle of temptation when we're facing a trial. You know, if this is who God is, this might be what he's allowing. And because temptation is all around me, this is really his doing. And so the reason I've fallen into my temptation, the reason I've fallen into my sin or I've given into my sin, this is really God's fault. Because if he really did love me or he really did go with what he said, he wouldn't have allowed this to happen or he wouldn't have put this in front of me. And so we tend to blame God. So you're no different than Adam and Eve. Okay? That's the first result. The second result is that we become complacent. In the middle of a trial, when we're undergoing temptation in that trial, what we tend to do is that we become complacent. Well, this is just who I am. This is how God created me. So I might as well, you know, I have these uh, animal instincts. I might as well just go ahead and move forward with whatever is being tempted, uh, whatever it is that I'm being tempted by or with. And again, neither is biblical. The first one is a lie because we see from the beginning that one of the first things that we do, that rather than relying on the word of God and who God is, we blame him. The second one, we immediately forget that even our own nature is corrupt. When we sinned back in Genesis 3, that distorted everything not just the kind of season that you find yourself in, 
but that distorted us as image bearers, right? That shattered our relationship with God and the access that we had to God. Our very own nature is corrupt. And we often forget about this, right? Ecclesiastes 7.20 says, Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. I wonder if his tone is sarcastic. But nonetheless, our nature is corrupt. And so if we're not blaming God, we're being complacent. And again, using poor theology to determine or define or to address where we find ourselves in. This is just who I am. This is how I act. This is how God made me, which really takes us back to the first one that we're blaming God for the way that we are, which again, stems from really, really poor theology, right? Stems from really poor theology. So first thing about temptation that James says is that God tempts no one. But trials do present themselves with temptations, right? So we need, to, we need to get that out of the way. And that might be you. You may have a poor and immature understanding of the gospel. And so you might find yourself blaming God for the season that you're in. But it's not very biblical, right? The next thing that James addresses well, in the midst of, of, of uh, temptation, right, is that we need to understand a few things about temptation, Again, remember, it's a word that gets thrown around a lot. And so we need to understand a couple of things about temptation, right? Here's the first one. Here we go. You guys ready? Temptation is not sin. All right, no one's surprised by that. I like it, right? Temptation is not sin. However, it is an opportunity. Much like trials are an opportunity for us to grow and mature in steadfastness, temptations are an opportunity. They are an opportunity for you to either fall into your sin or for you to resist that sin and walk away. All right? And as you walk away, you praise God. Man, we want to make a big deal out of small victories. Oftentimes when we've met with couples in the past, my wife and I, or when I meet with some of the guys, that's one of the biggest things that we try to stress. We're going to stress small victories, right? So temptation is not a sin, but it is an opportunity to either for for you to decide to fall into that sin or for you to resist that sin, resist that temptation and walk away and praise God. Listen to Paul once more in 1 Corinthians 10, 13. This is what he writes. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. All right, here we go. Temptation is an opportunity to either sin or to worship God by resisting your sin. So because of that, leave your excuse, or better yet, own your excuses. Own up to your excuses. Man, I was tempted and there was nowhere for me to go. Yet scripture says that there's always a way of an escape. Maybe you're that cat that works at an office and you're just like, man, I am just too tempted. Look at the floor, look at the ceiling. You're not going to get fired if you're still doing your job. Okay? Don't tell me that there's not a way out. And I'm preaching to the choir on this. But own your excuses and stop making your excuses, right? 
We've talked about this several months ago, that our foundation for everything is going to be the doctrine of sola scriptura, right? By scripture alone, that this is where we will uh, determine how we live, uh, this, that scripture determines everything about us. What we believe shapes how we live. That's ultimately what we're saying under the doctrine of sola scriptura. By scripture alone, that will help us determine how we are supposed to live. So if you and I are going to hold fast to the word of God, stop making an excuse for your temptation and you falling into your sin. Stop making that excuse. Well, it's because I was alone. So don't be alone. Right? The computer was just on. So get accountability software. Stop sleeping with your phone next to the nightstand. Bring other people into your life to help, you know, call you out and hold you accountable. You know? If you see that individual in the office, go to the other office, turn around. See, I know cats that have left their career to pursue something else because of temptation that was in their way or in the, the, the place of work that they found themselves in, right? And it's not because they're saying, look how awesome I am. It's because they're saying, man, I want Jesus more than this. And oftentimes, oftentimes when you and I give in to our temptation, it's because we are physically attracted to that sin. We are physically attracted to that. And we're saying, man, if we fall into this, Jesus cannot give me this. The reason, and here's the key, the reason I am deciding, the reason I am choosing to fall into this sin is because Jesus cannot provide this for me. Right? Scripture says that you have no excuse and there's always an escape. There's always an escape. Whether that means you got to bounce and leave the building or whether it means you're that guy that's always looking at the floor, then do it. Stop making excuses. Just stop it. If you need accountability, not a pitch, you need accountability, get in a community group so that others could speak into your life, so that they can speak the healing and transformative power of the gospel in you. Stop making excuses. Temptation is not a sin, but it is an opportunity. Number two, right? This is about a few things understanding about temptation. Number two, temptation always begins with a question or a twisting of Scripture. We can go all the way back to the garden. Where we're going to find ourselves in. If you want to flip uh, you know, your, your Bibles there, we're going to go to Matthew 4 in just a second, right? Temptation always begins with a question. It begins with a question of either what has God said or who you are, right? It always begins with a question. Let's go back to Genesis 3 briefly, right? So God gives them the command. He sets them in the garden and then enter the serpent in chapter 3. And what's the first thing he says? Did God really say? Did God really say? Let's look at Matthew 4. We're going uh, to look at what Jesus did in the middle of temptation, right? We're going to look at verses uh, 1 through 11. All right, here we go. And I'm going to pause every once in a while. Verse 1 in chapter 4 of Matthew, it says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness. Some of this stuff is, are not on the notes, so I'm going to stop every once in a while. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Right? Here's the first thing that you should catch in verse 1. Sweet, they're up. The first thing that you should catch in verse 1 is that he was led up by the Spirit. Circle that. Circle that right? The next thing that we see is he says, after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. So he's hungry. He hasn't eaten anything in 40 days and 40 nights. So he's weak and he's tired, 
right? If you've ever fasted longer than two hours, okay, you, you get that, right? And that's a really, really, it's like 40 days are up here. Your two hours and 10 minutes are down here, right? So after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. So he was hungry, he's tired, and he's weak, right? So verse, verse 3, and the tempter came and said to him, check it, here's the first thing that he says, the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Verse five, then the devil took, it's like, he's just going one, one at a time, right? Uh, the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and on their, on their hands, they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against the stone. And Jesus said, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord, your God to test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and, and their glory. And he said to them, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Verse 11, then the devil left him, right? Like a baller, Okay. So here's, here's, here's what I want you to know, right? In verses 1 through 11, Jesus is tired, he's hungry, and he's weak, okay? In the middle of your season, you might feel the same way. You might feel really tired, you might feel really weak, and you might be really hungry, right? And what Jesus is showing us is that through the power of the Holy Spirit, he resisted Satan and sin using the word of God. You see, Jesus wasn't allowing. He was tired, he was hungry, and he was weak. He was not, and we've talked about this, right? He was not allowing his circumstance to determine the outcome. What he relied on was the word of God alone. The word of God alone. And check it. Oftentimes when we read this, we're like, well, yeah, Jesus is God. But we need to understand that the son set aside his deity and came and entered into human history. So yeah, he's fully God, but he's also fully man. He's doing this as a man. He is resisting sin, quoting scripture, holding fast to the word of God as man. All right? So that's number two, right? That was, that was the second piece that we had looked at. That temptation always begins with a question. And in light of Matthew uh, chapter 4, the third thing is that you will be tempted like Jesus was tempted. We just, we just unpack that, right? That you're going to be tempted just like Jesus was tempted. You're going to be tempted when you're tired. You're going to be tempted when you're hungry. You're going to be tempted when you're weak. Trials will present temptation, right? And again, his joy wasn't in his circumstance, his joy was in the word of God. His joy was found in who God is and what God had done, right? That's where we need to go. But the only way for us to go there and to grow in that understanding is to find ourselves desperately immersed in the pages of Scripture. That's where we go. That's the first place we ought to go, right? 
One of the other things that I wanted to unpack is oftentimes when we see that, that uh, uh, where, where James says, God cannot be tempted by evil. I unpack that just a little bit because people will often look at that and say, well, I don't know if that makes sense. I think that's a little bit contradicting, don't you think? If, if Jesus was God, how was he tempted? Because in James, it says that he cannot be tempted. Again, the difference here is that the son set aside his deity and he entered into human history, right? This is where we get the incarnation that he became flesh, right? That he faced all of the things that you and I face, and he still resisted sin. Everything that you and I are a part of, he was a part of, yet without sin. Without sin. And he resisted temptation and sin by leaning on the word of God. All right? The next part is really going to talk about and unpack that last verse in that section, right? That last verse in that section, I believe that's uh, verse, verse 15. Verse 15 says, then desire when it is conceived gives birth to uh, sin. Oh, better yet, let's go to 14. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed. This is where we talked about, right? By his own desire. I'll say that one more time, right? (laughs) By his own desire. Verse 15, then desire when it is conceived gives gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Here's what he is saying, right? The temptations that you and I will face are a result of our desires. Let me say it this way. I'm going to quote Douglas Moo. That is his name. And he goes on and says, temptation involves the innate desire toward evil as it is enticed by the superficial attractiveness of sin. If a person should welcome rather than resist that temptation, desire conceives. And if not turned away immediately, it produces sin. Verses 14 and 15 talk about human responsibility. That's what he's talking about. Human responsibility. You will be tempted in the face of a trial. Temptation is an opportunity to sin or to worship God. And you need to take responsibility for the decision that you make upon that temptation. That's what he is getting at. That we are responsible. You see, God's sovereignty does not diminish our responsibility. So stop making excuses for it. Your maturity is not determined by how often you're faced with trial and temptation, but by how you resist temptation in the face of trials. Let's say that one more time. Your maturity is not determined by how often uh, you're faced with trial and temptation, but by how you resist temptation in the face of trials, right? What he's getting at here is ownership when we fall into sin. If God does not tempt us, we just unpacked that and we made that clear. He does not tempt us. Should you and I fall into sin in lieu of our temptation, that is our responsibility. We made the decision to sin. We made the decision to follow through with the desire that temptation presented itself with. And that desire comes from within. 
And when we give in to our sin, we are saying, Jesus cannot provide this. When we give in to our sin, we are saying, Jesus is not sufficient. Right? He is getting to human responsibility. Jesus paid the penalty for sin on the cross. And he paid for it with really good money, his own blood. He conquered sin, but its presence still lingers. And we're going to look at this at the end of our time. Nevertheless, the same Holy Spirit that dwelled in Jesus dwells in us, which means you can be victorious. We'll unpack that in just a bit. All right? We're not done. Sorry. Verses 16 to 18. This is the transitory verse I was telling you about. This is what James says. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. So why that's so transitory is because he spent three verses unpacking a reminder in light of trials. He unpacked what temptation is and what God does not do, but he also unpacked what we do, what we're responsible for. So when he goes on to say, do not be deceived, he's ultimately saying, now you can't make any excuses. You're all on the same page. You all have the same understanding. I've told you, don't be deceived. Don't go on to think something else. I just cleared it up for you. You follow me on that? Right, so don't be deceived. So if you find yourself like, well, you know, God has just tempted me. Don't deceive yourself because James just finished unpacking it in verses 12 to 15. And that's exactly what he's saying in verse 16. Stop deceiving yourself. Right? He goes on to say, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. So I told you we were going to unpack four categories. The first one was trials, which we already did. The second one was temptation. And now what we're going to unpack is what James is addressing, who God is. Okay? Who God is. Here are three things, right? <laughs> Lists. Anyway, here are three things. Number one, God is a father who gives good gifts. See, we often forget this. God is a father who gives really good gifts. In fact, he is eager to listen to you. We looked at this, I think it was two weeks ago, when he was saying, um, if any of you lacks wisdom, ask God who gives generously. He is eager to listen to you. Right? He is eager to hear you. And so in light of that, God is a father who gives good gifts. He gives good gifts as an extension of his grace, not so that we would skew who he is and value the gift more than the giver. Feel me on that? He gives gifts as an extension of his grace, not so that upon receiving it, we would value the gift more than the one who gave the gift. It's supposed to be a reminder of him as a good father who gives really, really good stuff. You know, you ever been surprised? Christmas, birthdays, stuff like that. You get even just a re- like a Monday, right? And you get a really good gift, like an Amazon package at the front door, right? Those kinds of things. Man, that's just a reminder of God's grace. Maybe it's just me. Number two, God is a father who is unchanging, right? He goes on to talk about that, right? With whom there's no variation or shadow due to change. God is a father who is unchanging. Hebrews 13, 8 says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. That is immensely assuring. That is immensely encouraging. Let me tell you why, okay? And we're going to look at the example of love. Here's what I mean by this. I've been married 
right? Or my wife and I, sorry. My wife and I have been married uh, a little over three years, right? And, uh, right? <laughs> Very awesome. I lost my train of thought. We, <laughs> we've been married a little over three years, right? Now, <laughs> just hear me on this. So uh, I love my wife more today than I did three years ago, right? Now, that happens by us getting to know one another, doing life together, arguing, having heated discussions, right? Uh, (laughs) It happens by us doing life, right? By us reconciling with one another, all the fun stuff that comes with marriage, right? And it gets us right now to this point where I can say, man, I love my wife more today than I did three years ago. But you guys, if, if we were to look at a chart, right? If we were to look at a chart, you'd see that a lot of work happened in order for us to get there. You feel me? Right? Okay, cool. When we're looking at God's love, what you and I try to do is we try to add human emotion to that. When it says, uh, when we read that God's love is unchanging, that means it was the same across the board. There is no chart that shows he spiked it up right here. He loved you really well here, but then you did this one thing and he didn't really love you that much. Right. And then it kind of picked up. And so you were kind of back in his favor. And so his love kind of increased for you. It doesn't work that way. His love does not change. It is the same all across. Now that's incredibly assuring because number one, it's a love that I will never obtain because that's how strong it is. But you and I try to identify and define it by attributing human emotion to it. But it's not necessarily what it looks like because even in our own, even on our best days, using the example of my wife and I, it took us three years to get to the love that we have for one another right now. Three years from now, that's going to be different. And there's going to be this flow chart, right? This because it's because life has happened. When we're looking at the love of God, it is unchanging. And that is incredibly assuring. That is incredibly encouraging because despite the thing that you did this weekend that you shouldn't have done, he still loves you and has forgiven you. Right? Despite the thing that you said you wouldn't do, number one, I would encourage you to repent. Number two, man, it's still here. It hasn't changed. There is no, no, I guess it's a flat line, right? There's, there's nothing like that. It is unchanging. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Right? That's number two. Number three, in light of who God is. Right? God is a father who doesn't tempt us in times of trials. Right? Just a very simple final reminder in light of what we just looked at in verses 12 to 15. Excuse me. He does not tempt us in the midst of trials. So stop deceiving yourselves. Stop thinking otherwise. We just unpacked that. That's, exen- that's James's argument. Stop deceiving yourselves if we've just unpacked it. Then he transitions into the last verse, and he says, Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. This is, who God, this is what God does. Three things. Number one, God doesn't work apart from his will or word. Again, that's assuring because what we're going to see God do is reveal himself through scripture so we know that he will always work in light of what he has said and what he has promised, right? It says it right there in that last verse, right? Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. 
Number two, God is intentional in drawing us to himself. When he writes of his own will, he brought us forth. Right? He is intentional in drawing us, calling us to himself. If you still feel or find it random that you love Jesus, that's cool. It's not random to him. You're not random. You are intentional. And when he drew you and called you to himself, he did so through the power of his word. And finally, number three, God's grace has been extended to people. Excuse me. God's grace has been extended through his word to people to bring a glimpse. This is what he's talking about when he uses the word first fruits to bring a glimpse of what will eventually happen. Restoration. That all things will be made new. We looked at this a couple of weeks ago in Revelation 21, right? God choosing and drawing people to himself, demonstrating his intentionality and his love for you is not only not random, right? It is to provide a glimpse of what will eventually happen. Restoration. That all things would be made new. That's what James is getting at right here. So here are my final thoughts. In light of all this unpacking, Right? Number one, in order, in order to withstand trials and temptation, we must stand firm. We must be steadfast, believing. And I mean that in the most definitive way possible, believing that Jesus is better. And when we say we believe that, that means that word belief in the Greek means to come under submission of that set of beliefs. So it's not just something we say and something that we acknowledge. It's that we come under and submit to those sets of beliefs. And in this case, it's that Jesus is Lord, right? So we come under submission and say, Jesus is better. Listen to Romans 8, another one from Paul. Romans 8, verse 18, he writes, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Some of you are going through really difficult times. Some of you may have just come out of it. Some of you are about to enter one of those difficult seasons. It is not without purpose. And because it is not without purpose, right, you can look ahead to what is coming. You can look ahead to the podium. You can look ahead to that uh, wreath. And what he is talking about is that imperishable gift, that inheritance, eternal sonship, right, in the presence of the living God. That is what we look forward to. Don't ignore what you're walking through. Don't ignore what you're walking through, but it is with, it does not go without purpose. So look ahead of what will come. And finally, number two, here's the, the bottom line of, of kind of everything that we've been talking about. Here's the bottom line. You can be victorious over sin. Listen to me on this, especially if you find yourself in that really hard place. You can be victorious over sin. You can be victorious over sin through the power of the Holy Spirit. When we looked at Matthew 4, that, that is who carried Jesus. It was the Holy Spirit who carried him. Listen to, this is 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 13. And so Paul writes, and we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit. 
interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. And so if you have, if you belong to Jesus, then the Holy Spirit has taken residence in your life. And because of that, you can be victorious over sin. So don't quit. Don't quit. When you see verse 12 and he says, blessed is the man who remains steadfast, he is saying in in plain language, blessed is the man who doesn't give up. Don't give up. If you belong to Jesus and the Holy Spirit has taken residence in you, that means you can be victorious over sin. So don't give up. You can beat sin. And oftentimes, here's the last thing, oftentimes I I think we tend to, I don't know where this came from. Maybe it was social media. I don't know. Oftentimes we'll tend to use that that phrase, right? God... uh, God doesn't give you more than you can handle, something like that, right? Maybe you guys might be familiar with that. I don't like it, I, man, at all, at all. Because we can go through the pages of Scripture, and there were tons of dudes who were given stuff that they could not handle, period, right? So I don't think that's biblical, right? I think that's just social media rubbish, right? And so in light of that, if that's what you're thinking, you're already off to the wrong, wrong, on the wrong foot, Right? The trial that you're going to face is going to feel like you can't handle. And the truth is, oftentimes, you can't. So stop relying on your own strength and rely on the Holy Spirit who is in you, who dwells in you. Rely on Him and His Word. I promise you, when you walk through that trial and it's just stressful and it's weighty and it's heavy, the first thing you're not going to be thinking of or you shouldn't be thinking, well, I thought God wouldn't give me something I couldn't handle. Obviously, that's not biblical or true. So as you walk through that, hold fast to the word of God because of the Holy Spirit that dwells in you. Hold fast to the life of Jesus that he was tempted in every way yet did not sin. Hold fast to his word in light of what we see in Matthew 4, that Jesus was tired. You might be tired. You might just be done with this season, that he was isolated. Maybe you feel alone, that he was weak, that you can't go on anymore, that he was tired, that you're not so sure what tomorrow is going to look like. Yet in the midst of that, he did not count that circumstance to determine what was going to happen. In light of that circumstance, he still used scripture to resist Satan and to resist sin. So let's find ourselves reminding ourselves of the Holy Spirit that dwells in us should we belong to Jesus so that we would desperately immerse ourselves in the pages of Scripture. Join me in prayer. Heavenly Fathers, we close our time and we've looked at trials and we've looked at temptations. Lord, we know that they're not random. We know that they're coming, both trial and temptation. We know that they're not random, and we know that that we will face them, whether it's today or tomorrow. The question is when. But nevertheless, nevertheless, Lord, may we be a people, a church family, who holds fast to your word and to your word alone. That we would lean into one another for the purpose of being reminded of who we are and what you have said in your word that we would have a clear understanding of the gospel so that when temptation comes, we know it's not you tempting us, but it is 
an opportunity for us to fall into our sin or for us to worship you in light of what your son did on the cross, that he paid the penalty for sin with his own blood. And Lord, maybe some of us, uh, some, some, some here find themselves in a difficult season where they have already given in to their temptation. And Lord, should you or should they belong to you, if you have called them to yourself, I pray that you would remind them, I pray that you would remind them of your forgiveness and your grace. And as you remind them of, their, of your forgiveness and your grace, Lord, may they be sensitive to their sin so that they would grow um, so that they would grow to hate their sin. If they are sensitive and troubled by their sin, Lord, that is that is you convicting them. And Lord, please, please continue to do so so that they would grow to be mature Christians who hate their sin. And we know we can be victorious, not because we're awesome, but because you're awesome. And we know that we can be victorious because we know that your Holy Spirit does not work or speak apart from Scripture. So let us hold fast to the pages of Scripture. Let us hold fast to your word. That is what we will live by. That is what will govern our lives. And Lord, as we transition into a time of offering, into a time of response, Lord, when it, when it comes to tithes, this is, this is the part of, of our service. This is the part of our time where, where we give you our stuff. Where we give you our stuff. Because the truth is, uh, the money already belongs to you. The money already belongs to you. This is a time of a testimony of what you've done in our lives, this is also a time where we are putting our flesh to death, where we're putting uh, the, the temptation that says, no, this is your money, when it's not. We're putting the temptation that says, you should keep this. No, we won't, because you have paid it all. And your word says that your grace is sufficient. So this is where we give you our stuff. And Lord, eventually we're gonna come to a time of communion. And this is where we give you our sin where we confess our sin before you so that our hearts would be convicted, so that we would grow in maturity, and so that we would worship you, so that we would come to a mature understanding of your gospel. Lord, we love you. We thank you for this time. This time spent in James um, has not only been um, convicting and edifying, but it is not random for us in our time. Lord, we love you. It's in our name that we pray. Amen.